The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good evening. So tonight we're starting um, a four-week series on the Eightfold Path. And um, I'm going to first start with an overview of the path, and then I'll focus mostly on the very first step of the path, uh, right view. Uh, In the West, most people come to the path through the practice of sitting meditation. Um, But sitting meditation is only one part of the path. The Eightfold Path is supposed to encompass your entire life every waking moment of your life, every sleeping moment of your life, actually. Um, It's about developing a lasting happiness in your life. Bhante Gunaratna calls the Eightfold Path the Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness. People start meditating for a lot of different reasons. Um, You might be for stress relief, uh, might be medical reasons, you've got high blood pressure. Uh, some people, um, uh, this last year I met um, Greg, Gregory Mumford, who was, uh, I'm really bad at remembering what uh, uh, basketball uh, teams it was, uh, but he was like a, taught meditation to uh, one of the uh, major basketball teams, you know, so uh, you know, they didn't know they were doing a Buddhist practice. They were just getting much, much better. You know, and they were one of the winning teams. And, um, you know, maybe some, I'll remember who it is. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of different reasons we start to meditate. Uh, some people have pain. Um, and that's what starts, you know, a way to deal with pain, a way to deal with loss. Um, you know, things fall apart in their lives. There are all good reasons to practice, to feel better, to, to be healthy, uh, to play sports better. Those are all great reasons to practice. But the Buddha, uh, when he taught the Eightfold Path, uh, the purpose of practice was a much more comprehensive reason. It was to be free, to be completely happy and at peace. And for that, he taught a systematic, gradual training of the mind. And um, the, his focus, uh, the path, is described in the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are, the first one is that dukkha, or suffering, exists. Now, that word dukkha can be translated and is translated in many, many, many ways. And there isn't quite a, an exact translation for it. Uh, what it really means is that there is dissatisfaction in life. There's unsatisfactoriness in life. It doesn't mean that everything's unsatisfactory or everything's suffering. It, but it does mean that we all experience unsatisfactoriness. That things often just don't feel okay. They don't feel good enough. Uh, we don't like the way things are often. Uh, they're not the way we would have them if we, if we had a choice. And um, that ranges from the smallest, smallest uh, irritation, like uh, just a little too warm, and you're sitting there going, God, I wish the air conditioner would kick on, or, or to the greatest losses in life when we lose uh, partners or children or parents uh, or jobs or health. So Duke encompasses the whole range of, of human uh, experience and unsatisfactoriness. What the Buddha said that, you know, first we have to really get it, get that that's the reality. You know, we can't, we can't deal with, with what's not there. So we have to really understand that this is inherent in life. We can't deny that. And that the cause of our suffering around the fact that we really can't always get what we want is, the, is clinging, is the actual wanting things to be different. These things are going to happen. But we add this whole dimension of saying, well, I don't want it to be that way. I don't want, you know, these things to happen. And it's that conflict between what's really happening and what we want to be happening that's the suffering. And so that's what the second noble truth is. It's that it's the clinging to wanting things to be different than they are 
or to wanting something or to wanting to push something away. And the third noble truth is that our suffering or dissatisfaction can cease when we let go of this clinging. And the fourth noble truth is the actual path, is how do we let go? It's really easy to say, oh yeah, you know, just let go. You know, I, mean, I don't know if anybody's told you that, you know, just let go. Yeah, yeah, you know, the idea sounds good, but how do you let go? And that's what we're going to talk about, the, the Eightfold Path, which is kind of a systematic training of the mind to learn how to let go. The Fourth Noble Truth, it's a map, a gradual training to be free. It's made up of three sections. There's three categories. The first category is wisdom. The second is virtue. And the third is concentration. So the first category, wisdom, is your attitude. And uh, we talk about right view and right intention. And that's where you have to start. You start with, with the attitude. You want to get free. The second part of the path is virtue. That's how you live your life. It's your speech, your actions, what you do every day. And the last part of the path is the concentration. It's the training of the mind in the meditative uh, practices with mindfulness, with concentration, and, the, and with effort. So the first, I'll just review the eight of them, and, and we will be going through them in the next few weeks. But so the wisdom part are the first two, right view and right intention, which with your right view and right intention, we go into the next section, the virtue, which is how we live our lives with right action, right speech, and right livelihood. And then we go into the last part of the path, the samadhi or concentration, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, which is the training of the mind. It's all really training of the mind. The whole thing is. Um, so, you know, I want to also say, you know, we talk about right view, right this, right that. It's really important to understand the word right in the proper context. Um, it's translated from the Pali Sama. Um, and it doesn't mean right in a moralistic sense, like right and wrong, but it's more in the terms of, like, let's say you wanted to drive to San Francisco. You know, you're going to get on, say, 280 to get there. That's the right road. It doesn't make uh, 94 the wrong road, a, a bad road, a wrong road. It's just not the road you want to get to San Francisco. So in the same way, when we talk about right view, it's the view that we hold if we want to get free if we want to have long-term happiness. It's the view that works. So that's what's meant by right view. Uh, one of the things, you know, I find for myself, you know, I actually review the path um, every time I meditate. I just go through it in my mind uh, every day because I find that it really helps me put my life in context. It reminds me that my life all of my life is about getting free. Um, every step of the path is in relation to freedom. For instance, um, when we talk about right speech, um, I don't know how many of you have heard motivational speakers, you know, who, who they just say these great things, you know, and uh, they, every word that comes out of their mouth might be the right word, but their motivation might be to manipulate you, to get you to buy something, to get you to do something. So that's not right speech. The words might be right. They might actually not be harmful, the words themselves, but the intention is not in relation to freedom. So that's what differentiates between right view, right action. If it's in relation to lasting happiness, in relation to freedom, um, same thing with concentration. You know, uh, a lot of us are very good at concentrating, you know, and, you know, you might be like sitting at the computer completely involved and, fix, you know, working out some problem and, and, you know, your face is scrunched up and you're really tense and you're concentrating really well. You know, your mind doesn't get distracted, but are you happy? You know, are you relaxed? Are you at ease? Um, it's like a bank robber, you know, um, a safe cracker. You know, they're like sitting very, very concentrated to crack that safe. 
but that's you know a situation that doesn't lead to happiness. So um, so now I'm going to go ahead and start on right view. It all kind of mushes together, but um, right view. Uh, it's also called right understanding or samaditi in in Pali. Um, there was a study, I actually just read about this this morning. Um, they gave people uh, orange juice, this, uh, Tropicana orange juice. And um, they had like three glasses. Uh, one of them was just simple plain juice. The next one was the same juice, but colored with a little dye, tasteless dye, just a little bit darker. And the third one, they added a bunch of sugar to it. And then they asked people to say, you know, how they differed from each other. What was really fascinating was that the people who had the orange juice that had the sugar, but looked the same, said it's the same thing, had no difference in taste. The people who drank, the, who looked, who saw, who, and the same people, when they saw the juice that was darker, they said it was sweeter. It was the same exact juice. Now, what's really interesting, it was actually really most of the people responded this way. I mean, that's what was so ama- what's amazing about this. And, and what's important about this, Ed, it's how easy we can delude ourselves so that we don't really see what's right in front of us. We get an idea, dark juice is sweeter. Okay, so we believe that. So it doesn't matter what our senses tell us. You know, we already know. We've made up our minds. So reality uh, doesn't really matter with it when we have a view set a certain way. Um, and we do that all the time, really. We do that a lot. They did another study with meat. This is back in the 70s, you know. That this was um, where um, they had, uh, I don't know if any of you heard about this, you know, they, they colored the meat. So it had a slight tinge of blue, and the French fries looked green. But under certain lights, they looked normal. So these people start out, you know, with the, with the good lighting. And, you know, everything's fine, it's delicious. And then they change the lighting. Some people got sick, even though they had told them there's nothing wrong with the meat. Just eat it. It's, it's really healthy. It's, really, it's just coloring. It didn't matter. The mind had already decided that that's, you know, that's not good. So um, it's uh, another, another example on how we make these decisions about life. Um, you know, something that happened to me personally um, uh, is what can happen with a charismatic teacher. You know, I was involved in a group very early in my life, a, a spiritual group, where uh, people thought the teacher was like a very um, saintly being. So whenever he did anything that wasn't saintly, people would say things like, um, well, he's testing us, you know, or, um, you know, that person's freaking out, or, you know, they just, there'd be all these things, you know, didn't matter what the facts came in, you know, that... uh, you know, somebody had left who said he did this terrible thing to them. And they'd say, oh, that person just freaked out. You know, that couldn't possibly be true. And it didn't matter what information came in, that would be what the, uh, you know, how people would think of it. And, you know, this is really what, it just causes tremendous massive suffering in the world. We hold on to these ideas about this group of people is better than another group of people. Um, this way of life is better than this other way of life, and it doesn't matter what data comes in, we're stuck. And so we're stuck in the same patterns of, if we're suffering in our lives, we're stuck in those ideas that we, you know, this is how we are, this is who we are. We are these people who are suffering in these ways, and we kind of get stuck there. So uh, what we want to do is like kind of deconstruct or view so we can really see what's in front of us. That's a lot of what this Buddhist path offers. We let go of, of the concepts we have so we can really see clearly. That's what Vipassana means, is to see clearly. Um, right view um, can be um, 
there are basically two major aspects to right view. Uh, the four noble, understanding the Four Noble Truths and um, understanding the concept of karma. So let me ask you right now. I'd like you all to just for one minute, I want you to close your eyes. And just check in with how you feel right at this moment. Do you have any experience of unsatisfactoriness right at this moment? Either physical, emotional, or mental? Is any part of your body tense? Any anxiety present? Any worry? Can you let go of any of it? Can you just relax a little bit more? Even if you relax, can you relax a little more? Maybe take a deep breath. So, um, how many of you experience some form of um, unsatisfactoriness? How many of you notice that? So, quite a few. Because <laughs> the majority, actually. Um, were you able to let go a little bit more by giving it attention? Um, so, this is what the practice is about in daily life to bring that ability to let go like that throughout the day uh, through our understanding that we're, there's something we're holding on to when we're, when we're not okay, when we're not at peace. There's something we're doing. And, and there's some, when we're doing something, it's also something we can let go of. There's some, it doesn't mean that you can let go of everything all at once. You, can, you, know, you might be really worried. And it doesn't mean you're going to give it attention and, and that's all going to dissolve. But it means you can do a little bit of letting go at any given moment. Um, I try to check in, you know. Um, I've taught this before, you know, but I, but I really recommend it. I try to check in like once an hour during my, during my work day. And where um, I should take five breaths, a five breath break, where... Um, I'll just uh, inhale, I'll exhale and relax my legs. Second breath, I'll relax my abdomen, my low back. The third breath, I'll relax my chest and mid-back. The fourth breath, my neck and arms. And the fifth breath, my face and head. There isn't any right way to do it. It's just that kind of works for me. It's five breaths, a minute, I'm done. And it just kind of brings this practice, this, this uh, you know, uh, it trains me to to stop contracting against life all the time, which is what we often do. That's what clinging is, is contracting against what is, pushing away what we don't like, grabbing what we don't have. That constant push and pull uh, that is you know, the human experience. It's really understanding that we can't always get what we want. Who, was, who did that? That was um, Rolling Stones, right? You can't always get what you want. Uh, but to open to life as it is. Um, the other aspect of right view is karma. Now, karma means action. It's cause and effect. Um, in relation to the path, it means that our choices, the choices we make, will either lead us towards happiness or towards unhappiness. Um, karma is about intention or will. And what that means is that, uh, that karma is essentially a mental event. For instance, um, if you step on a bug, okay, Let's say you step on a bug and kill it. If you do it accidentally, 
you, and, and you notice it. You might, go, you might feel a little bit of sadness, like, oh, wow, I didn't mean to kill it. You know? And it's just a little sadness comes and goes, and you keep going. Um, but if you step on a bug because you go, Ugh, I can't stand that bug, and you're disgusted, and, and you just want to kill it and get rid of it, if that happens, you're conditioning yourself towards aversion and ill will so that you become a more aversive person and uh, you support those parts yourself. So even though the same thing happened, you killed the bug, the effect on you is, can be very, very different depending on your mental attitude, on your intention. Um, if any time you act based on dislike, it supports the quality of aversion, which is one of the three roots of suffering. The three roots of suffering are aversion, desire, and delusion. So anytime we act on those things, it supports those qualities. Um, the way I like to think of karma is that everything matters. Every moment counts. There is the moment that doesn't count. It's conditioning you towards one thing or another. If you're sitting, uh, you know, kind of in a lazy day and, you know, and you're feeling bored and you go, oh, God, I hate the way I feel, I hate the way I feel, da, da, da. That conditions you in, in this negative cycle uh, so that when there's uh, a lull, you dislike that state. And so if you don't notice all those thoughts, you're just conditioning that, that way of being. If you... Um, um, a better example is like, for instance, um, I used to be really critical. I, I, I still, it's not that I'm completely not critical, but I used to really uh, see the worst in people. I sort of grew up that way. And um, so that I, you know, when I saw a person, I just saw what was wrong with them, basically. It was very hard for me to see anything else. And, um, and you know, having that kind of attitude, you know, it's an exaggerated attitude. Um, but um, what happens is you're, you're so used to just looking, looking for what's wrong, there just isn't the room to see anything else. And I was actually very affected. Um, what turned it around for me was I met this, this man who was incredibly compassionate. Um, he wasn't a spiritual teacher or anything, but he was just this incredible compassionate man. And it was, uh, and he just looked at me while I was being incredibly critical with tremendous compassion and it touched something in me. And um, it was like the first time in my life I actually really respected another human being and, um, and I was an adult by then. <laughs> and, um, and once I did that, I thought, wow, I wonder if, there's, uh, if I'm missing something else here. And so I started really beginning to look for the good things in people. And uh, at a different point in my life, I actually started training myself that way. Just so that instead of seeing what's wrong with people, just really seeing what's right with them. And as I started doing that, it just became automatic. Where it's much easier for me to see what's right with people now than what's wrong with them. It's not that I don't have the wisdom to see, oh, that person... uh, they like to steal, you know, and, and might, I might want to lock my house. You know, I still have that discernment. But um, I also can see that that person might be a suffering person. They might be bright. They might, you know, have a nice laugh. You know, I can see the whole picture. I'm no longer limited by the fact that I, you know, I was only focusing on, on the negative aspects. But that's karma. That's how karma works. You condition yourself. Whatever you do... You do it once. It's like playing the piano. You know, you play the note once. I don't know if you've ever trained, any of you have ever trained with music, you'll know that if you allow yourself to hit the wrong note a few times, it becomes easier and easier. Uh, so you want to make sure you get it right, right at the beginning. Um, but it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever it is you do over and over again gets easier. So whatever type of mental attitude you have, the more you repeat it, the easier it gets the more ingrained it gets. Um, many people um, think of karma in relation to um, past and future lives. 
How many of you associate karma with uh, reincarnation and, and past and future lives? You know, so um, that it's a subject that I'm not going to particularly go into tonight. Um, it's got a lot of controversy, but I, I do want to mention it. I don't want to leave that unsaid. But the Buddha said this about that. Uh, he said, consider that if there is no future life, doing wholesome things will bring me happiness and a clear conscience in this life. If it turns out that there is a future life beyond death, I'll be doubly rewarded now and then again later. On the other hand, if there is no future life, acting in an unwholesome way will make me feel miserable and guilty in this life. And if it turns out that there really is a future life, I'll suffer again later. So it's very practical. Uh, you know, that's a lot of how the Buddha taught this in a very practical way. You know, doesn't ask you to believe anything. Just really, you know, look at your experience and, and, um, and learn from that. The effects of karma lead to two types of immediate results. One of them internal and one of them external. And what's meant by that, for instance, um, if you cultivate uh, friendliness and loving kindness towards people, you know, internally you feel good. You know, whenever you're feeling uh, friendly towards people, it actually feels pretty nice inside. Externally, when you treat people nicely, they usually tend to treat you a lot nicer. So you do get that benefit, but it's not nowhere near as important as the internal benefit. The opposite is also quite clear. Uh, the Buddha said, pointed to ten actions that are always unskillful because they cause suffering. So three are physical, four are verbal, and the last three are actions of the mind. So the first three actions of the body are, are what are pretty obvious, um, you know, killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. You know, that's kind of like an open question. Basically, any sexuality that is harmful to people, it's abusing or sexual energy. Um, however, we might understand that. Um, the four actions of speech are lying, uh, malicious or divisive speech, uh, harsh language, um, and useless uh, or idle talk. And the last three are actions of the mind that are always harmful. And again, that's any, any thoughts of greed, aversion, ill will, uh, or delusion. Um, so the, it doesn't mean that when those things arise in our minds that we make them wrong. Because they rise in our minds all the time. Okay, so it's really an understanding. I, you know, I don't think I can go ten minutes, you know, normally during the day without some form of greed rising up. You know, uh, something comes up. You know, I want to be a little more comfortable. Um, I want to be a little bit more this, a little more that. You know, something's, you know, something's always coming up. Um, so we don't want to make these, you know, when greed comes up, it's something that, that arises. We don't want to make, it, make ourselves wrong and contract around it, but it's recognizing it, allowing it to be that, and just and letting it go through us. So if, um, you know, greed arises for the fifth piece of pie, you know, um, you, know you, re- you don't make yourself wrong for having, having the thought. You know, but you recognize that you don't want to pursue that action. Um, the understanding of karma means that we requires that we take responsibility for what happens to us, to not blame others, or or, or and not to blame the circumstances or anything outside ourselves, to not be a victim. We can't eliminate many of the problems that arise in life, but we can eliminate our own unskillful reactions to them. We can change ourselves to be at peace regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Uh, 
um, an example that I'd like to bring up is like um, in unfair situations. How many of you have been in an unfair situation in your life? Right? So let's say um, you have a situation at work where you've done a whole bunch of work and your boss takes full credit for it and you have no recourse. There's just really nothing you can do. And um, so how do we deal with that skillfully? What do we do with that? If we hate our boss, uh, and we, you know, and we feel angry and upset, uh, they couldn't care less, right? You know, we're the ones that suffer. The chemistry in our bodies, the anger, the emotions, uh, those are all harmful to us. When we focus on the unfairness, you know, we, we t- retell the story over and over again. Oh, that was so terrible, that was so terrible. You know, we get stressed and we get tense and we, um, you know, basically we do a lot of suffering around it. Is there a way we can accept that, yes, that was unfair? That's the reality of it. Something unfair and unwanted happened to us. And can we not resist that it happened? Because it really did happen. There is nothing helpful about saying it shouldn't have happened. There's nothing. You know, it's a recognition that, that this is, you know, life on this planet is often unfair. A lot of people are starving. A lot of people don't have enough. A lot of people have huge amounts of stuff. Life is unfair. So can we not resist the unfairness? It doesn't mean that we don't do something if we can. For instance, you know, in a situation with your boss, maybe you can file a complaint. uh, You can say something. You can quit your job. There's lots, you know, there might be things you can do. But sometimes there isn't. We do what we can do, but it doesn't have to be done with a resistance to the fact that it actually happened. Can we be at peace with the fact that it happened, even though it was painful, even though it's not what we wanted? Can we accept it and be at peace with it? Can we not give up our happiness in that situation? A lot of us would rather be right than be happy. And often a situation like that, that, that really brings up that, I, that wanting to be right and not wanting to let go of the fact we've been wronged, you know, and that righteousness and not wanting to let go of those feelings. Um, it's not easy to let go in a situation like this. That's why we train our minds. That's why it's so necessary, you know, the last uh, section of the Eightfold Path, the right effort, concentration, and mindfulness. We need to have a clear mind to be able to disentangle all these emotions uh, and be able to really see clearly enough to let go. But what's really wonderful about karma is that just by inclining ourselves, just a little bit, just saying, well, it feels really hard to let go. This is really painful. I really don't like this. I really don't want it. But I'm going to incline myself to let go, to not feed the anger, to not feed my resistance. Just a little bit of an inclination. If we do it again and again and again, it gets easier and easier to let go. And all of a sudden you find yourself, a situation comes up that would have made you really really pissed you off you know and all of a sudden it's just like you you know go oh wow huh and it's just gone so that's how the mind gets trained and so uh, you know that's the power of karma um, the Buddha said um, beings are owners of their actions the heirs of their actions they spring from their actions are bound to their actions and are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, of those they shall be heirs. Right view is the forerunner of the entire path. It's the guide for all the other factors. It lets us understand our starting point and our destination. It helps us not get lost. Um, 
An example might be, let's say you're, um, you know, you're suffering from a childhood, uh, a childhood trauma. You know, the emotions from some, some thing in your childhood are really have coming up for you in your life now. And um, you know, maybe your parents did something really awful. You know, and, and so it's, it's a real thing that happened and you're investigating it and you're remem- remembering and going through all, the, all these little traumas that happened in your life. And um, what do we do with that? You know, sometimes in therapy, people go into, you know, uh, remembering all these things and working with them, but they might get stuck in, you know, blaming their parents for it and they just get really angry and kind of they get stuck there. What the... What right view does, it doesn't negate any of that. And it doesn't take away the power of looking at our past history and working with it. But it adds one more dimension. How are we suffering right now? What are we holding on to right now? Because all suffering is now. That's the only time you suffer is now. Right now, right at this moment, at any given moment. So that's the dimension that we bring into any story that we have from our past. Um, is there something I'm clinging to right now? You know, yes, this trauma happened in the past and it caused all these things, that all these consequences in my life, but right at this moment, is there something that I'm holding on to that it shouldn't have happened, right? You know, that, that, that should never have happened to me. Um, and if we get stuck in that shouldn't have happened and they were terrible, we get stuck there, it doesn't it really doesn't do any good. You know, you can have all the memory and, and talk about it, but if, if you're stuck in that blaming, it doesn't let you get free of it. The question is, where are we clinging now, right at this moment, at any given moment? How are we clinging and how can we let go? Our view is or the orientation of our life. It's what guides our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. Just like the orange juice, you know, we weren't aware that we had this idea that uh, the dark orange juice is sweeter. You know, so it's the same way that our view, um, you know, we're not aware of the views that run us. So it's a very important area to explore. You know, the the view of that suffering can be released through letting go of clinging uh, is a view that can orient us in the road to happiness. The Eightfold Path starts with a conceptual understanding of the Four Noble Truths, but it reaches its climax in a deep penetrating knowledge of the same truths. Even though you might intellectually have an understanding that clinging causes suffering, as we practice, uh, that understanding gets deeper and deeper until eventually it's so clear that we can just completely let go. Um, the, they say that the path begins and ends with right view, with wisdom, with understanding. Um, and I'm going to end with um, a quote from the Dhammapada, uh, from the Buddha. Um, All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows, as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. Thank you. So we have um, got about 15 minutes. If you have any questions, if you want to talk about any of this, I'd be happy to. Uh, it seems like right view um, is a fairly to have right view. 
uh, is a fairly sophisticated ability that's a prerequisite to understand and sort of follow uh, the Dharma. Whereas, so the more right speech, right action, seems much more uh, socially contained and appropriate for like an everyday. So I'm wondering how, you know, you wake up in the morning and you don't have right view. So how do you get right view? <laughs> I mean, it, it's sort of a self circular problem. Don't have right view. How do you get right view? Well, you know, right view can be very simple. You know, right view says that I'm going to do things that make me happy. And I'm not going to do things that make me happy in the long term. And I'm not going to do things that make me unhappy in the long term. And, and um, for instance, um, getting drunk might make you happy, okay? But you do know that if you get drunk long term, that isn't going to help. Um, so, so right view is like, uh, it can be that simple. We just look at our life and do the things that, um, that are going to help us in the long term. And we look at our thoughts and we support the thoughts that help us, that are helpful, the thoughts that are kind, the thoughts that are uh, supportive of ourselves. If, if we find ourselves thinking, oh, I'm stupid, we go, oh, okay, that's not a useful thought. doesn't mean we, we get down on ourselves for having it, but it means that that's not a thought we want to support. So it's very practical in a way. Um, and as our practice deepens, um, it, pe- it starts getting penetrating uh, it starts. It gets easier to see it in everything we do. But go ahead. You're going to say one more thing. Uh, well, well, that um, prompted a question. Well, um, what if I'm wonderfully deluded? And if what? I'm wonderfully deluded, delusional. And so I might very well have the notion that I have right view. Um, we're all deluded. Well, right. So yeah. there's another. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you're deluded until you're awake. So um, so there's another sort of circular problem of, well, how do you know you're dreaming? How do you know you're deluded if you're deluded? Kind of. Um, you work with what, what comes up. You know, as, as the mind settles, it starts seeing more. Um, the... Depending where you are in your practice, like for instance, one of the things, um, the very basic delusion that we have is that we think that the impermanent is permanent, um, that things that are really unsatisfactory, that they'll make us happy, you know, that if we just get that new car, if we just get that new relationship, or just get that we'll be happy, you know. So that's the, you know, that's a delusion that we think that certain things are going to make us happy. Um, so those are the basic delusions. And on a very basic level, we think that, um, oh yeah, if I just you know get that great meal, I'm going to be happy. If the meal's over, then what? You know, now you now you want something else to be happy. So nothing lasts. But we are deluded into thinking that things last. Um, we're deluded to the, in thinking that we our personality is who we are. You know, that our likes and dislikes are who we are. So those are all delusions that run us. Um, as the mind gets quieter, we start seeing that a little bit more clearly. So we don't really, um, there, we can't actually practice directly with it if, if you're inclined. One of the, uh, the Buddha gave 40 different things to meditate, contemplate on. And three of them were these three things, impermanence. So you can actually directly start paying attention to it if you wanted to. Um, you know, as you're going for something you're craving, you know, am I, is this permanent, you know, or um, as you're clinging to a loved one, you know, this isn't going to last. You know, just having that, um, that awareness uh, uh, that everything, nothing lasts. Everything goes away. Everything. Um, so... <laughs> So I've only been practicing a few months, and I guess a question that I have, maybe it's obvious to some people. Um, you know, I listen to uh, several teachers who have spoken here now, and, you know, it seems like mindfulness is 
the thing you want to pay attention to in order for everything else to fall into place. So why was the Eightfold Path written in such a way where mindfulness comes towards the end? Because if you're talking, you know, his question is right view. You know, how do you attain right view all the time? If you're not paying attention, as we, I'm not, you know, probably 98% of the day sometimes, I'm not going to have right view. So I'm just curious as to, well, I guess if Buddha were alive, I could ask him, but... That's a a great question. I'm really glad you asked that because I actually meant to say something about that. And I just uh, just forgot to say it. Um, But the path is not in an order. Okay, It's, it's really all the aspects of the path actually intertwine because you can't have right view without mindfulness. You can't. And you can't practice without right effort. And you can't do anything if your mind isn't able to concentrate. Um, all of your actions, you have to have mindfulness. Otherwise, you don't know. If you're in the habit of, um, of, of gossip, you know, if you're not mindful, you're just going to keep doing it. So it's all, mindfulness is essential in every part of the path. Um, it's not taught sequentially. Um, in fact, people, um, you know, people approach the path in a lot of different ways. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's like if you're in the middle of your work day, you know, you might be much more focused on right action or right speech than you're focused on right mindfulness uh, as an entity. Uh, but, um, again, mindfulness is, is something that needs to be applied all day long. So, thank you for bringing that, bringing that up. Um, I, I had a question on the permanence impermanence, and I think I was listening to a talk from Shyla, and um, it's it's in that awareness where we're you know kind of plugged into our senses and in that mo- in the moment, um, and knowing that those things are not permanent, and so I'm kind of I guess I'm, I'm wondering it's awareness itself that is the only permanent thing in the moment that we have, it seems. Um, so I'm curious, is that accurate? And also, um, how do we kind of not cling to it or grab it more, but how do we get in touch with that more? Is it just being in the moment, I guess? I mean, I've, I've been practicing about a year, and I'm trying to really get at that, that uh, kind of the thing that is permanent, you know? Um. The only thing that's permanent is change. Um, there, um, you know, even that sense of awareness of self, is that permanent? You know, is there anything there except the process of, of uh, awareness? Um, Any time you try to hold on to something to make it make sense, um, you're, you're contracting, you're constricting, you're trying to create something. Um, freedom's about letting go, not having something, not having to have a reference point. So it's a little bit of what you're asking. It's, it's like you want a reference point for the now. And um, there is no reference point in freedom. You know, there's a flow. There's a flow. And there's um, the habit of mindfulness, of awareness, gets stronger and stronger as we practice. So I I don't know if that if that's helpful at all. Um, yeah. It is. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and and I've heard it, it was the Buddha or someone that said you know pretty much if you just ride your, your the breath will lead you to aware you know awakening. So, but that in itself is clinging a bit, isn't it? Not to to the breath. So in the end, it's you're even free from following the breath, right? At some it's, it's what we call skillful means. There's a lot of skillful ways of, the, of training the mind. The Eightfold Path is a training. It's not freedom in itself. Um, and so we train our minds, and following the breath is the form of training. There's a lot of different techniques in meditation that work just as well as following the breath. That's one very, very uh, useful, great approach. But there are other approaches. Um, so the breath, um, I mean, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a great, 
place to focus on because really that's where life comes in and that's where life goes out. So it's a very sweet thing to focus on. But um, it's not even, it's not particularly necessary. Um, it's about training the attention, training the ability to be here and to see more clearly. That's what the practice is. There might be somebody who's a hearing assisted device. So. Uh, my question is in regards to um, mindfulness in terms of, let's say, the mind settles and you get to start to know uh, habits of mind that are, once you realize they exist, are distressing, mm-hmm. and ways maybe to cultivate patience with that because you don't want to run away from them, but, and, but you don't necessarily want to actively try to change them because that's forcing and contracting as well. How does one cultivate patience for what is that's distressing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, when I find something inside myself that I don't like, that's a habit that I don't like, like let's say one of the things, um, um, you know, I've had a tendency to worry a lot. You know, that, that's like been a long time thing I've worked with. And um, so what I, what I do is I get interested in it. Okay, so instead of treating it like something that, that's wrong with me, it's I try to get curious about it. It's like, what is this worry like? What is the experience of worry? What is that habit of worry like? Watch worry arise. Watch worry, you know, what does it do in the body? How does it feel in the body? How does it feel in the emotions? Um, do I have thoughts about worry? Because often what happens is, you know, I might be worried about something, and uh, and then my mind is saying, "You're meditating. You shouldn't be worrying." <laughs> you know, so I'm rejecting the fact that I'm worrying. So I've gotten more and more interested in those unwholesome or un, you know um, unskillful states, and um, give them attention. You know, and and then watch them trickle out, go away, because they do. You know, they come and go. So it's it's really the idea is having a friendly relationship with with all these you know difficult, painful entanglements inside us. Is being friendly towards them, being compassionate towards them. So we have time for. Half a question. <laughs> so, so thank you, everyone. Have a good night.